Will you pray with me? Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you, God, for the precious gift of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that right now, Lord, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit, that you would captivate our minds and our hearts with your word that you deliver to us through the prophets, words of hope, words of love, words of joy, words of great expectation. And so, Lord, we surrender to you now in the name, the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Let us be seated. So it's only five days now until the big day. Christmas. It's hard to believe that it's already here, isn't it? Do you have big plans this year? Two years ago, my family had some big plans. See, everyone in Lindsay's family was coming. Lindsay was about three months pregnant with our son, August, and everybody decided that would be a great opportunity to come have Christmas in San Antonio. So Lindsay's parents, her aunt and uncle, her grandmother, her brother, my sister, or the sister-in-law, you know, kids, all, all, everybody was coming, and it was going to be fun. We were going to worship together on Christmas Eve and then come celebrate Christmas together as a family at home. It was a great plan. But nothing went according to plan that year. It was definitely, if you've ever seen the movie, the equivalent of our Griswold family Christmas. I think this clip might give you a sense, metaphorically, of just how things went for us that year. Watch this. So I don't know if any Christmas has gone more off the rails than that one, but I I felt like ours kind of did that year. No, we didn't have a dog named Snots, and uh, our little Boston Terrier boxer mix did not run through our home and destroy everything about Christmas. But Lindsay was pregnant that year, and she wasn't feeling terribly well at that point. And, you know, not just because of the baby, but she also had a terrible sinus infection. By Christmas Eve, she was absolutely feeling miserable. Daphne, Iris, and Silas, our three kids uh, that had been born at that point, uh, were also sick pretty much the entire month of December. Nobody had been sleeping. Uh, We had kids in and out of our bed pretty much every night for several weeks. It was uh, just no fun. Silas also, uh, he ended up needing tubes and had a terrible uh, kind of an ear infection. And no medicine was working. He was screaming all the time. So on Christmas Eve, on that day when all of our hopes, all of our plans, everything was supposed to come together as family arrived, the, the weight of all of that coming together just became too much. There came a point where Lindsay just simply retreated into our small playroom and had a cry. I mean, not even our worship experience turned out as we hoped, guys. Uh, Lindsay and, brought the kids and the family, and Silas's ear infection was so bad that Lindsay just had to stand outside with him. We didn't even get to worship as a family that year. Our plans had been good. They were plans centered on Christ and his family. But life happened. It was definitely one of our most memorable Christmases, but not for the reasons that we expected. And we've almost, two years out, we've almost gotten to the point where we can really laugh about it together as a family. Almost. (laughs) 
See, God knows what that feels like. God knows what it looks like to have a good and perfect plan appear to be going completely off the rails. It's exactly what happened at the very beginning of time when Adam and Eve fell into sin. See, their rebellion in God resulted in God having to separate himself from humanity, uh, the people that he had created, the ones that he so loved, the ones that he wanted to dwell intimately and deeply in relationship with in the beautiful place that he had created for them. Seemingly at that point, God's beautiful plan was ruined. But unlike our plans, the plans and purposes of God can never be ultimately thwarted. It's what we began to unpack last week with Pastor Matt. As God planted the seed of his plan for the salvation of the world in the midst of pronouncing judgment. While he was doing that, he almost he always promised, he also promised a savior. One who would defeat evil and sin once and for all. This week, as we continue to look toward the coming of the promised king, we're going to move a long way forward in the story of God to the time of the prophets. It's a period that is between about 600 and 750 years before the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to the days of Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. As we step back into this time, we find ourselves in a divided kingdom that's on a path to destruction and exile. God has long since delivered his people from Egypt and brought them into the land that he promised to give to Abraham. And that kingdom rose to prominence under King David and ultimately would reach its zenith under King Solomon and thereafter be quickly torn in two. Many kings had come and gone before the days of these prophets, and most of them, Scripture declares, were evil men who had abandoned God and his ways and abused their power and their people. Once again, as in the garden, God's good and perfect plan looked to be in peril. But it would be through these prophets, in the midst of these dark times, that God would continue to unfold his plan for the salvation of the world. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, these four men we're providentially given the ability to see centuries ahead and get a glimpse of the glory of God that would show forth on that first Christmas through the person of God's Son, Jesus Christ. What God showed them about his plan must have filled them with expectation and given the people of God a sure and certain hope that even in the midst of all that was going on around them, God had not abandoned them. The promised king was still to come. And through these prophets, 
God gave his people important insight into this king's identity, how his people would recognize him, and what this king would do for a people that he so loved. So get ready. We're going to immerse ourselves in the Word of God and these prophets this morning. And in your Bibles, if you brought them with you, or your Bible apps will be primarily in Isaiah chapters 7, 9, and 11, as well as in Micah chapter 5. We'll also get to Jeremiah chapter 31 and Ezekiel chapter 36. Your Bible flipping skills will be tested, but not to worry. If you can't flip fast enough, the scriptures will also be on the screen. So as God began to unfold who this coming king would be to Isaiah and Micah, what he revealed to them was nothing short of astonishing. We get a picture of it in Micah chapter 5 there in verse 2 that declares that this would be a ruler in Israel, a king truly was coming. But as Micah and Isaiah continued to say more about him, anyone that had ears to hear could quickly tell that this would be no ordinary king. This was not going to be the king that they were used to in the days in which they lived. This king would be God himself. Look at the rest of the verse in Micah. There it says, This king's coming forth is from of old. From ancient days, there is more than a hint of eternity attached to Micah's prophetic words. And Isaiah brings even more clarity to the identity of this king and the names that he ascribes to him. Names so magnificent that they could only be names of God himself. Look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. There, Isaiah says that this king will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And were there any lingering doubts that this coming king would be God incarnate? What Isaiah shared in chapter 7, verse 6, had to have put them to rest when he says that this coming king will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Not only do these prophets talk about the identity of this coming king, they also explain in great detail how God's people were to recognize him. Here, what Isaiah said had to have bring the people great comfort. There must have been some fear that they might miss his coming that they might not see it, that it might pass them by. But in chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah tells them that the Lord himself will give them a sign. This is not something that they would miss. Something miraculous would herald the king's coming, something that undeniably declared that Emmanuel had arrived. Let's continue reading there. The virgin will conceive... And give birth to a son. Now, God had done some amazing things in the history of his people. He had made many barren wombs fertile, but never 
in the history of the world had a woman who had never known a man born a child. This remarkable sign, the prophet said, would declare the arrival of God's promised king. But amazingly, the prophecy gets even more precise than this. Through Isaiah, God reveals the line from which this promised king would come. It's there in chapter 11, verse 1 of Isaiah, where he says, with the word of God speaking through him, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesse had been the father of King David. And through Isaiah, the Lord reveals that the king who would fulfill his plan for the salvation of the world would come from that line. To that point, the greatest king that Israel had ever known. They were words of comfort and words of joy. And finally, through Micah, the Lord gave his people one more sign. He reveals the exact location of where the king would be born. It's there in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel. Isn't it incredibly specific how all of this is? But God isn't close to being done. He graciously reveals even more of his plan to his people. Not only do they reveal who this promised king is and how they will know it's him, but they describe exactly what type of king he will be. Look with me at chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 there in Micah. He shall stand and shepherd his flock. In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Can you imagine the hope that welled up in the hearts of God's people as they looked to the words of Micah in the centuries awaiting his coming? God's promise of peace, shalom, must have sang to their hearts in the light of the dangers that they faced in that day. The promised land, after all, at that time was at the crossroads of the world. And any kingdom that wanted to dominate the entire world wanted that small piece of real estate. This king, God promised, would stand against the world with God's strength. But it's the imagery of a shepherd that paints a picture that is even more profound. It speaks of intimacy and relationship. This coming king would offer his people the thing that they were created for, relationship with God, knowing him, being known by him and dwelling securely under his protection and care. 
You see, from the beginning, God's plan had been to undo the relational separation that Adam's and Eve's rebellion in the garden had brought about. But despite his loving pursuit, the story of God shows how his people continue to turn away from him time and again. Sin continued to get in the way of the relationship of intimacy and love that God so desired with them. And the Mosaic covenant of sacrifice and substitution hadn't changed what needed changing most, the hearts of God's people. Something radical needed to happen. And through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God revealed that this promised king would do for God's people what they could not do for themselves. It was through this king Jeremiah proclaimed that God would establish a new covenant with his people. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning there in verse 31. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them And I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. And they will be my people. And this new covenant, God revealed through his prophet Ezekiel, would be written on new hearts that this promised king would give to them. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. All this, forgiving his people's sin reclaiming his people for himself and putting his spirit within them, God promised he would accomplish through this promised king. As the people now must have looked with some anticipation, one final question must have come bubbling up in their hearts. By what power and authority would this be done? God had never overlooked sin. And before a new covenant could be made, the old one had to be fulfilled. Where would this king get such power and authority? Isaiah speaks to this in really a pretty peculiar way in chapter 9, there in verse 6. It's there that he writes that this promised king, that his power and authority, that the government would be on his shoulders. What is strange about this is that a sign 
of a king's power and authority typically resides on his head in the symbol of a crown. But this king will be different. His power and authority will rest on his shoulders. The very place that someone would carry the heavy wooden beam of a cross. God's plan was indeed perfect. It had no flaws. The promised king would be a shepherd who would be willing to lay down his life for the lives of his flock. This king would pay the price, pay the tax that his subjects would be unable to pay. This king would set his people free from their slavery to sin and death. Hear one last set of words from God through the prophet Isaiah. They're from chapter 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. It was the Lord's will to crush him, And cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. What a beautiful gift is the Word of God given to us through these prophets. What an amazing plan for the salvation of the world. This coming Thursday, we will celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, of our King, Jesus Christ. The promised King that Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel longed to see in their day. The words of these prophets brought hope to God's people for hundreds of years before the birth of this promised king. And these words should fill our hearts with hope today. Our hope may be different than theirs because of the perspective of time, but our hope is the same of theirs because it is in the same person, Jesus Christ. So this morning... Let the hope, 
that our promised King brings fill your hearts. Allow God's plan for the salvation of the world to capture the imagination of your minds in the coming days as we approach worship at Christmas Eve. Know the love that God has for each one of you in the person of His Son and experience the joy of fully embracing your identity in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for the sure and certain hope that we have in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. In your plan for Christmas, the King promised from long ago the one who is life and salvation for all who believe in him. By your Spirit this morning, turn our hearts to him, especially as we approach the glorious celebration of his birth. And remind us, Lord, that whatever is going on in our lives, Whatever it is that may be separating us from you, that there is nowhere that we can run that you aren't pursuing us through him, that there is no sin too deep or too dark that we cannot lay down at the feet of our king and receive forgiveness by the power and authority of his saving and finished work on the cross, and that there is no place of brokenness within us that he cannot redeem and through the ministry of his spirit make new and beautiful. This Christmas, Lord, help us to come to the King, Jesus, to know the love, the joy, the peace, and the hope that we can only have in Him. All this we ask in His name. Amen.